I really early on identified that I wanted to get to smaller startups. And that was the start of this kind of 10 year slide of going to smaller and smaller teams and, and going really early. It's just something that's interesting that in your early years, you learn that it's okay to be different, but that wasn't always easy. It just, it shows the complexity of, of somebody and you often don't know, um, you know, some of these things that people are grappling with or, or, or thinking about. So we all have yeah. something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. What do you do if you really want to just end the interview? Maybe like this one. <laughs> um, what I would do is just, you know, have Wi-Fi problems and just shut my computer and, uh, and see you guys there. Oh uh, no, I'm going uh, into a tunnel. <laughs> All right, friends, welcome to Venture Vibes, where we hang out with people who love building new things. Today, we're excited to have Chris Marty here. He's a partner at Andrew Venture. So, Chris, do you want to uh, give us a quick intro? Sure. Yeah. Well, hello, guys. It's, it's fun to be here. My name is Chris. I'm an operating partner at Unusual Ventures. And I guess just quick primer on what we do. We're an early stage venture capital firm, primarily making seed investments, um, some opportunistic A investments, some, some pre-seed. Um, we've been around about five years, actually, almost to the day. Um, we're, we're about three funds in. And we, we kind of exist to put the muscle back into actually supporting the founders that we seed. So I think, you know, a lot of VCs talk about doing that, but I would say building programs that actually put that into action is a little harder to find. Um, it's one of our differentiators. So I'm, I'm on a team we call Founder Services. Um, there are six, six or so operating partners. Each of us has a specific functional expertise uh, built around experiences at hyper growth companies and you know we'll allocate 80 percent of the of the half a billion we raised last year to 25 companies over the next three years and the six of us go in in a very deep way to support these founders so every quarter i work with two maybe three teams max and kind of become head of talent you know it, it can be helping with executive search it can be Helping build out a recruiting engine that that achieves some some sense of early scale. Uh, it can be building out a founding engineering team. In fact, seed that's how that's how <laughs> I think we were first connected. Um, yep. So I you know I'm I'm always around to talk to our our investments across the board and be here for advice and connections. But you know we aim to come in in a three or four month period and really execute on something that moves the ball further along to raising the A round and accelerates time to doing that and, and outcome. So very, very purpose-driven. And there are about 35 of us at the firm, uh, five general partners, and we have offices in Menlo Park, San Francisco, and Boston. Follow-up question, Chris. Um, yeah. You mentioned that unusual focus is on seed investments. Yes. Would you consider Hanson Investments as well? <laughs> <laughs> you know... I got. I don't have to think about that one. I don't think about that one. I like the guy. I've been holding on to that for I, I a like while. Sorry, I had to do it. I love it. I love it. Good. It's a good name. Um, I mean, it really is. You know, seed is born to do something in venture at some point. I'm also curious. What is a like? What does a partner do? You know, VC firm. Like, what does it entail? 
I think the most common understanding of, of a partner in VC are general partners or investment partners who own the process of, you know, funding the investment, right? Funding, funding the new company. Um, I think more and more you are seeing a variety of other partner titles uh, in, in the operating realm. So, you know, talent partner is a fairly common role, marketing partner. But I think that the, the common kind of running joke, at least among my peers, who you would say are talent partners is sort of like, you know, do you know what you're doing? Like, do you know what you're doing? I think it's, it's the, the definition of these roles is very hard to pin down. And it's super dependent on how the firm views that function, right? I mean, you know, plenty of talent partners that have a role that sounds exactly the same as mine don't go deep with any companies and are really just facilitating as many touch points as they can with a really large number of investments. Um, to be honest, though, that will never appeal to me just because I, I like to be in the weeds. I like to do the work. I actually never thought I wanted to be an operating partner in VC. But I think if you really distill it down, it's, it's those who are very involved in the investments kind of zero to one or one to 10 efforts and really right. just trying to add as much value as possible without being overbearing, right? It doesn't, you can't thrust this on anybody, right? You, you try to prove value and, um, and, and when there's interest, you know, you, you try to make something happen. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. Cool. Makes sense. Next section. It's a new section we call it the seed round where I ask you about slightly uncomfortable questions. So what's overrated in startups? What's overrated at startups? Oh my God. I mean, like so many things, this project I was telling, telling you guys about that we're, we're, we're spinning up at unusual is this podcast will be meeting early operators, you know, from the most iconic tech companies, right? Employee number five at Pinterest or number 10 at Facebook and hearing their startup journey and story. And when you actually hear these stories, there's as much bad as there is good, right? It's never mm -hmm. up and to the right. It is incredibly messy. It is painful. I think what's overrated broadly is the experience. I think a lot of people who haven't been at a startup, it's glamorized, right? You only see the best stories. And so right. most startups fail, you know, most, you know, most people who go to a, a high rolling startup and spend three years don't get a resume boost that you would get yes. for taking a much less risky path at, say, Facebook. So just generally, I think there's not enough of a balanced perception of startup life. Of course, there's right. wonderful benefits as well. And I think if you choose the right one, it can act as, an, as a career accelerant that you just don't get at a company that's not moving as fast. Super, I mean, I guess in a, in a super specific way, um, what's overrated at startups. I think a lot of founders are way too focused on hiring people. I got to take it back to hiring, right? The recruiter, I think are way too focused on bringing in people who they, who they see as having relevant industry experience, right? I think what I've learned is like, it's, you know, the soft skills, the ambition, the hunger, the resilience, that is as important for an early stage hire, maybe even more than like very rigid and specific relevant experience. At Wealthfront, FinTech 1.0, you could say, 
where I spent many years, we didn't want to hire people who had fintech experience or finance experience. We were trying to do something different. And so there's a lot of recruiting thinking where people focus on the wrong attributes. And I think leaning into candidates who have, who have been in the same space or at a competitor, people are obsessed with that. I don't think that's always the right, that's the right approach. So that's, that's one overrated, uh, I would say, attribute. So the, the relevant industry experience of the early employees, is that what you're uh, specifically talking about there? Yeah. Yeah. I would rather have somebody with effort early hire who has done a lot of interesting things in their career, right? Shows that they can be promoted and ascend, but doesn't ne hasn't necessarily spent six years in fintech if you're hiring for a fintech company. I want them to have seen right. more, right? And almost be a more curious person, right? Than just deciding to kind of pursue the same things. Now, it's great to build that expertise, but I think that's more getting you on the path towards always taking on niche roles at finance companies, right? As opposed right. to the kind of breadth of creative thinking that you want in, in, early, in early hires. Um, Would you say that, Chris, that this extends to founders as well? Because like one of the concepts um, that, that we hear about a lot is founder market fit, right? It's this idea mm. that let's say Seed and I want to go start a company and yeah. Probably doesn't make a ton of sense to for us to start an electric vehicle company because neither of us know all that much about cars or have that many connections in the industry. So, you know, if we were to want to start a company for whatever reason, I think we'd want to find a co-founder or an early employee who has some kind of, you know, unfair advantage and knowledge in that industry. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm just curious, you know, of course, I hear you saying you want someone who can learn, someone who's shown the hunger and the capability to learn quickly, more so than someone who's just been in that niche forever. Mm -hmm. Just curious if that applies to founders, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I'm not the one making the the investments, although it certainly fascinates me. I would I would apply a different formula. I mean, I think you mm -hmm. definitely, I mean, you, you need somebody who has some clear leg up, right? And sort of edge in the space. Like when I think about founding teams, and of course I, I work with many who will, will do a $6 million seed round. The team is three founders and I meet them, right? And then we're, we're on our way. I think what is really important in my experience is a, either a founding team that's very well-rounded or secondly, a founding team that's keenly aware of their weaknesses. Most teams have a technical founder of some kind. Some might have a business leader of some kind. But there are gaps, right? In a founding team, you're sometimes not going to have a lot of marketing experience, right? Too often, founders are a little overly bullish on their qualifications to um, own some of these, some of these really difficult functions um, for a bit, a bit too long. So that's that's kind of how I, I think about it, right? It's like how do you, how do you create a well-rounded early team such that people are excited to join? If people see gaps, they're going to see this. This is this is risky. Overconfident is yep. the core skill for being a founder, though. <laughs> I, 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 I think, think a little um, overconfidence is good. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think you need that. Yeah. And um, I think, uh, I, I don't remember who said this, maybe Charlie Munger said, uh, um, never underestimate someone who keep overestimating himself. She said that. Well, I think a little bit of that yeah. just sounds like, I think, I think overestimating paired with at least with some awareness, right? But I think that tends to be people who are optimistic, right? And just like, they don't get beaten down. They're just going to keep running at things, build a great 
team and you build something and it doesn't hit because the market didn't want that. And so I think in that situation, you need to be, you need to be confident in your approach, but not confident that you know everything. Um, right. That's important. Sort of like strong opinions, loosely held kind of, you know, you got to be like confident exactly. enough to take the risk and be like, you know what? We can work this one out, right? But yes. when you see the signal that this is wrong, especially early on, don't yeah. like get stuck on that idea. Be ready to pivot. That's right. That's one of my favorite company values. Um, I don't actually I think it's a, some version of that. I think I've, I've, I've had it, companies I've been at at least twice. I think that's a really good quality in an early team. You, you want people who have perspective and a belief in something, but don't, don't follow that blindly. I think that's a big one. Makes sense. I'll wrap this section up with uh, one slightly funny question. You're a recruiter, and I also interview people. A lot of times, you kind of minute one, you know this person's not going to make it, right? It's not the good fit. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, what do you do if you really want to just end the interview? Maybe like this one. <laughs> um, what I would do is just, you know, have Wi-Fi problems and just shut my computer and, uh, and see you guys there. No, I'm kidding. I think... Um, Oh no, I'm going uh, into a tunnel. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful out and I lost my connection. No, um, I, I guess the deeper deeper question behind this, you know, funny prompt is um, um I love it. I like the prompt. Yeah. Yeah, how like how do you be efficient and uh without kind of offending anybody because nobody has time to to waste in, sure. in startup land, but how do you balance that with still being humble and uh being, you know, caring sure. for others? Sure. Well, I think it, I would approach this differently depending on where in the process the interview is happening. So, you know, when I'm scheduling like an initial conversation with candidates, I think it's probably it, it's I send out a, you know, a Calendly link, but I'm certainly not promising 30 minutes. Um, I think, you know, there are ways if the conversation is not there's just clearly not a fit to wrap something up in maybe 20 minutes. But I think far more important than than my extra five minutes is and i i really believe this is when you're an early team you don't have any brand you have no talent brand and so far more important than 10 minutes you might get back is making damn sure that if you reject somebody and you know you end the call they still walk away feeling like they had a great experience with your company because like they are going to talk, they're going to tell people. And, you know, some of the best hires you can make early are candidates that were great, not a fit for your role, but bring others into the fold. Well, those yeah. are very thoughtful answers to two loaded questions. So keep them yeah, coming. It's great. <laughs> you passed the C round. All right, let's move to the. <laughs> oh my God, here we go. A round. Okay, let's just, let's just skip to IPO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So next section, we'd love to dive into, you know, Chris, your story a little bit and also the story of uh, Unusual uh, and some of your learnings there. And, you know, yep. we'd love to start from the beginning and kind of level set a little bit, right? We were all born at a very young age, as far as I know. So what uh, what was your childhood like and where did the story begin for Chris? Yes, yes. I was born 35 years ago, uh, this coming Thursday. 
My birthday is 420. So you could say that I am meant to be in San Francisco. Um, Sick. Yeah. Uh, Our listeners are probably all typing Blaze It right now in the comments. <laughs> um, C doesn't get it. I was born in Texas. I only lived there for like a few months. My family moved to Arlington, Virginia, actually Alexandria, Virginia, when I was teeny, and then moved to Menlo Park when I was about one and a half. And so I grew up in the same house in Menlo Park from 89 through leaving for college in, in 2006. And so I don't know. I mean, it's it wasn't the Menlo Park then that it is now, but obviously it still was very informed by being near Stanford and just all the innovation that happened. Um, my parents actually met um, at Stanford Business School. And so I didn't go to Stanford, but I grew up kind of on the campus, going to every sporting event. Um, you could kind of say that just the tech spirit was in my blood. But like really normal childhood, I was a, a very competitive figure skater for 10 years. Um, what? Which, yeah. Which, Wait, which, what? Yeah, it's true. Um, which, which at my like six foot one frame doesn't, you can't really reconcile, but yeah, from like the age of like, like six to 13 or five to 13, like I was like the guy, like skating three hours a day, traveling across the country. I was nationally ranked, um, all these things. And, um, and actually, I mean, I credit some of my, I don't know, hustle resilience to early sports flexibility experiences maybe. you don't do it because you're expecting a certain outcome um and uh and it was a blast so two sisters uh who are a twin sister and a younger sister both of whom are smarter than me seriously one of them got her, her mba from harvard and she's an absolute baller at a large public company and my younger sister has her phd in informatics bioinformatics and so she is a superstar researcher on cancer and and solving real problems i think i knew that i wanted to see something different right so i, I went to school back east in, in a school called william mary in virginia um i actually wanted to get as far away from sort of my tech upbringing as possible not because i hated it or I thought it was bad or wrong. I just, you know, it's a bubble. It's a bubble in Menlo Park. And even I could tell that with no life experience. And so uh, I studied English um, in college. Was this, uh, right. So so this was when you went to undergrad, when you're like, yeah. I want to get away from that tech bubble. Yeah. I just wanted to see something different because I went to a public school where, you know, 25 kids are getting into Stanford and going every year. It's just this this culture of overperformance and it, not that we weren't encouraged to pursue what we loved, but I think there was always a backdrop of how do you be the best? If you're not the best, how do you work harder to become the best? Um, right. And so I think that part of that is maybe what what excited me to go go somewhere else. Just it just it's just ironic that despite my best intentions and I even started in the business school and college and, and then decided I wanted to pursue English. It's like, I just couldn't help myself because I, there is something so captivating about the challenge of the tech world and the pace at which it moves and the innovation. So maybe we can get more into sort of 
but twists and turns that brought me back to the Bay Area. But I, I was I was very set on seeing a different part of you know American life, I guess. So, okay, that's pretty interesting. So, would you say, Chris, that there is anything particularly surprising? Like, is there a surprising story or fact about you um, outside of figure skating? Uh, gosh. Well, this, this, I don't know. I, whatever. This is, we can get personal. This is a, this is a, a conversation. <laughs> podcast. I'll probably share something that like, honestly, colleagues and others don't even know about me because it's so natural. But I, I actually, I was born without fingers on my left hand. So like, I like, wait, I what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have think I don't have fingers on my left hand. No fingers, no fingers. So what? I have like, yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. But I was born that way. And so it doesn't, it's not like I had to adjust. It's always been part of me. But I think like that sort of chip on the shoulder, kind of always the underdog, finding new ways of doing things. Um, I think that was a super obviously a formative part of me. Growing up, right? When you don't look like somebody, you have to deal with, you know, how do you have that conversation? Uh, and I think yeah. it, I hope, I, I like to think that it just gave me an eye for the underdog, right? Or, or anybody who's got some sort of struggle or, 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 or hidden challenge. So that's probably the most interesting fact, unusual fact about it's definitely about, pretty about, unusual. about me. <laughs> Yeah. A little unusual. And I still can play tennis, right? So that's... Um, that's, that's what I was going to say. I, I did, I did, <laughs> that's uh, important. Check, I did check out your, your UTI rank is like four points something. That's oh, wow. Impressive. You even know how to go in there and find it. Do you have a UTR? <laughs> Do you have a UTR rank yet? No. I'm, no. Dude, look at me. I'm fat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when you're born a certain way, it, you yeah. just adjust. So there's... There's nothing I can't do. It's just something that's interesting that in your early years, you, it, you learn that it's okay to be different, but that wasn't always easy, right? It's, a, you know, so yeah, I think right. that was just a, it's an interesting experience um, to have. And definitely gives yeah, you a different it, perspective, right? Because you, you are, dare I say, born into a pretty privileged life. Um, entirely privileged. Entirely. Right. Oh, yeah. But, oh yeah, but this definitely give like force you into a different perspective of underdog, which is, um, you know, unfortunate, but also fortunate at the same time, I guess. Well, that's a very good point, and I mean, let, let me be e extremely clear here: I have been afforded every possible privilege, right, growing up. But I think it it just it shows the complexity of of somebody, and you often don't know, um, you know, some of these things that people are grappling with or or, or thinking about. So we all have yeah. something. There, yeah. that's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. What is it like? Be kind to all because everybody's fighting a hard battle or, or something like that. So, Chris, moving on, uh, you know, when it comes to your story, right? Um, grew up in that tech bubble, decided that you wanted to leave. Um, is there sort of a, a short version of the story of how you sort of boomeranged around back to tech and, uh, yeah. you know, how'd you land at Google? Um, I think it was one of your early jobs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is probably, this is just where luck and time, right? There's so much of this is just lucky timing and taking advantage of it. When I graduated uh, with an English degree, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I actually ended up, I, had spent, I spent the summer after graduation singing in this semi-professional acapella group. Um, oh, wow. In, li in like a fancy That's town. That's another interesting it, fact. 
in New England. I guess that's another interesting fact. We sang for Meg Ryan. That was cool. But after that, I, you know, I'd been very involved in admissions at, at William & Mary at, at my college. I think I am a fairly natural evangelist when I care about something. I think one of my skills is kind of bringing others along. And so kind of the, the, the easiest thing for me to think about transitioning to in a professional capacity, I was an admissions counselor at a small liberal arts college outside of Baltimore for about a year and a half called Goucher College, a really cool place. But after a year and a half, and I think increasingly throughout that period, it just really hit me that even though I loved education and I loved, and I loved what I did, just the, the rate of change that was accessible to me, even as somebody who was striving to be a top performer, wasn't what I wanted it to be. In other words, it's kind of a waiting game, right? You, you're going to do great things, mm -hmm. but there are only so many roles in admissions. And I just, I didn't want to play the like 15 year, 10 year game to do kind of the work that I was actually really excited to do. And so on a complete right. and total whim, I applied to one role out in the Bay Area that I found that looked interesting. I don't even know where I found the posting. It was for a company called Wildfire, uh, which is a social media marketing company. It was, I mean, I didn't even know the term hypergrowth at the time, but looking back, it was in this pure hypergrowth moment, exceptionally charismatic founder, founding team, I should say. And spring break, I flew myself back out to California. They didn't pay for it to interview for a recruiting associate team on this recruiting team of 10, I think when the company was about 300 people. And I mean, I was mortified to, to interview because I just didn't know anything about the industry or the space. I just knew that I wanted, I knew the kind of environment I wanted, which was something exciting. And by some stroke of luck, and I'm, I'm dear friends with this whole team still, they hired me as you know, a, unit, a recruiting associate with, with no real tech experience. And three months after I joined, Google acquired the company. Um, and, ah. and, and the whole team went over. So I, I stumbled into Google. I mean, I, I did not, I was not like you're like knocking on the door, blow you up interviews. Like I was a very lucky recipient and it was crazy. I mean, three months into moving back to the Bay Area, in my mind, I had achieved tech mecca and I was ready to spend the next 10 years recruiting at Google. Mm. But very quickly after joining and despite the incredible opportunity, and I mean, I have many good friends who are still at Google 10 years later. Um, it became very clear to me that what I liked about recruiting could not be offered at Google because what I liked was actually connecting with candidates, knowing where they lived in the org and kind of building a new narrative, like building something. I had no interest in hiring people for managers I didn't know on teams I didn't care about. And so I actually transitioned into sales at Google because I thought that might be a more, yeah. a more, um, a better fit for me. But I, I really early on identified that I wanted to get to smaller startups. And that was the start of this kind of 10-year slide of going to smaller and smaller teams and, and going really early. And so it's interesting that sales was the second thing. What, what, were you looking for the ability to like build relationships? 
I was very close to one of the sales managers. She was just like, we can make this happen. C come do this instead. It was, it was more leaving something than running at something new. But gotcha. it was, and I didn't stay long. I mean, I, I probably did that role for about eight months or a year. And we can talk about that transition. But I'm so grateful because I think many great recruiters have spent some time in a pure sales role. And I think it's so helpful because it teaches you part of kind of the pipeline management and closing process that a lot of recruiters don't get access to if they just stay in recruiting. And so what it taught me to do was not just understand if there was a technical fit, but get at their motivations, big company, small company, what do you care about? And from there, you can maintain a really small pipeline of high quality candidates and actually be more effective than just this kind of scattershot approach. Yeah, there are people who say, um, really, regardless of your role, everybody should do sales for a bit, right? Everybody should I learn couldn't, the sales I couldn't mindset. agree more. Because it's such a, it's a very human-centric, almost like psychological like thing, like understanding people, what they really need, uh, what they really want, being able to sell like the pen or whatever the stereotypical sales interview yes, is, right? Right, 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 right. And right, this, right. like, this operationalizing mindset of like, how can I build a funnel? How do I track this? How do I... All of that. You know, efficiently spend my time and track it quantitatively via a number. I think those are great skills to have. 100%. Every good recruiter is able to look at a mass of candidates and spot those with, you know, after one conversation that are exceptionally high potential. And then their focus goes on those candidates and it's about getting them through. And I think that's, that is a sales skill, right? It, it's a persuasiveness thing. Did I ever tell you, uh, Chris, I was uh, sailing a leaker specking trial when I was 19 years old for uh, a summer. There you go. Three months. There you go. It was uh, very, very different from working in tech and uh, very valuable. <laughs> very valuable. Just getting right. drunk as a teenager Correct. with customers. Legally. Legally. <laughs> um, Cool. Right, so moving bye. on. So in Google, you figure out you really want to be in smaller teams. You like recruiting, right? Even you took a yeah. detour into sales um, and you joined um, Dropbox for, for a little bit, but then you joined Wealthfront, which is a very well-known company, uh, startup. Why did you make that move? Uh, what did you see in the, in the company? Also the whole journey of, uh, you know, from a recruiter going into the head of, head of recruiting. Uh, yeah. Just want to learn. A little bit yeah. of stories from, from that experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, when I left Google, I went to Dropbox. I was only there 10 months. I was on the, the early sales team selling Dropbox for business. It was really chaotic. But the Wellfront story is interesting. My cousin uh, was studying at Stanford. He actually came to me, Chris, I want to get an internship this summer. I'm graduating next year. Where should I go? And I said, dude, you should go to Wellfront. Like it's, they're the next thing, like go to Wealthfront. And so he did, like he, he went to Wealthfront and then, um, cause I'd heard about it. Like I knew a couple people who, who had gone there and when he got his full-time offer and signed it to come back when he graduated, he said, all right, man, it's your turn. You got to come to Wealthfront. And so, um, I joined Wealthfront. It, it was after the series B, but it's important to paint that picture. Like Wealthfront raised a series B 
with about one and a half billion dollars under management at a 700 million valuation. Like th this was like froth level. I mean, at the time we didn't know it, but it was going to take years to grow into this valuation. So small team, about 40 and a ton of work to do and even just penetrating the market. But in my mind, right, from a risk perspective, it was like, whoa, people see this as highly valuable. And they were right. But, but it was definitely a case of we are working into this thing for, for years to come. But I was excited because I wanted to build again. And so I joined, a, you know, this time the recruiting team as opposed to Wellfront, which was 12, was three. Um, there was a recruiting lead, technical recruiter, and me. I, I took a backward step, you know, from AE at Dropbox to really university recruiter at Wealthfront, but I was happy to do it. And the next five years were just the most challenging, formative parts of, of my career where we actually went through hyper growth and I got to experience parts of that, lead parts of that, recruit for every possible function, manage teams, you know, manage a function learn from really exceptional leadership at Wealthfront. It validated my hypothesis that I could make a career out of recruiting um, instead of doubling down on, on sales. If you pick one surprising story from that whole experience, what would you pick? I mean, there are so many. I think one that really paints a clear picture of just what we were going through was the first summer I was there. So you know, I joined, I joined January of 2015, really when like FinTech was still kind of a term that we weren't all using. And the team, like I said, was about, I think about 40, but we all had conviction that we were about to like explode, right? In terms of assets coming in and the, the, the number of people we would need to continue to iterate and build a product that that helped us be the leader in the space. And we were in a rat race with Betterment at the time for, for Top Dog. Summer 2015, this was my job. We hired 29 new grads to onboard into a team of 40. In addition to like, I don't know, a bunch of interns. So it was wild. So and it was doubling doubling the size of the team with but new hires was, and interns almost by the summer we were probably like 50 i would say and so we, we were like a 60 percent increase 60 percent increase and look these are new grads yeah. in engineering across every function phds right we had a brilliant research team but hiring them was i mean I have never had more volume. I mean, we were taking, the office was so full that we were taking calls like in the bathroom, you know, on picnic benches outside when it was cold. Like, but the crazy thing is, I just don't think we all thought about how hard it would be to onboard 30 people when you're a team of 50. And so it was just this crazy moment of, there's all this momentum, there's all this potential, we've raised all this money, let's run at this thing we really leaned into right early career talent, right? Like ex exceptional right. new grads. Like we had, a, we had a core belief and I still believe this. I mean, so much of my recruiting philosophy comes from what I learned at Wealthfront. You hire people who have something to prove and you give them the space to run at it. So 
you know, we'd hire too many new grads, but would we have, would we have done 12? Absolutely. Right. I never think we would have, we should have reversed course and hired only experienced engineers. You need, you need the right balance. Um, and there needs to always be, in my opinion, that sort of funnel of earlier career, career talent, because those are the people who then join at the right time. Yep. Yeah. Nothing beats the flame inside you. Right. Uh, yes. Yes. Cool. All right, let's move on. So you work at Unusual Venture. Tell us a little bit more about why it's unusual. What's unusual about it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the name and I think it's, it is, it's indicative of, of who we are. We were founded by John Brionis and, and Jody Bonsall and John, John was one of the enterprise investors at Lightspeed for many, many years and, and was, was very successful mm -hmm. there. Jody, serial entrepreneur, he founded AppDynamics, which if you, you, you might recall, on the cusp of going public, they were acquired for three and a half billion. He's built two more unicorns since then. And the, the wow. real or, origination, though, is, is John was, I think, becoming a bit disenfranchised by these highly successful, large-scale VCs that aimed to do founder level work and support, but just didn't have the structure to do it. So we were started to be different and to be the preeminent seed fund that both did the best job providing education and content for early stage founders, but also gave them the people, the bodies to accelerate their journey in three key areas, right? The three hardest things we think about the early stage journey are, you know, what is your go-to-market motion? How do you go to market, right? It's a very complicated process to do right. How do you hire the best people? And how do you position the product? And so from day one, the idea was to have one of the differentiators, a team of folks like us who would come in and support, support in that way. Um, number two, like we're very, very mission-driven. So, you know, we, you know, a really large chunk of our LPs are, from what we would describe as underserved communities in venture, um, whether this be, you know, educational institutions, HBCUs, um, healthcare institutions. So we, of course, are in the business to make money, but we are hoping to make money for LPs who can really use it for a positive force in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think as somebody personally who spent so much time internally at startups, that were so mission driven, that was paramount in my decision to join is like, there has to be some good root cause of, of why right. we're doing, why we're doing what we're, what we're doing. Right. So it's unusual because you're, you're much more actually embedded in terms of supporting the recruiting right. and like finding the people doing the hiring, which is one of the key three things to get right. And yep. because there's a lot of representation of underserved communities and, and founders. You got it. And I think, that, I mean, the third thing I would call out, which maybe has, is implied by the, the first thing I said, but I mean, we are entirely a team of operators, right? So, you know, it, it's not like the team I'm on, founder services are the only ones getting in the weeds. I mean, we have a ridiculously strong platform team that is both, you know, spearheading our brand development, but also supporting our founders. Um, our general partners are, you know, one of them is Sarah Leary, a founder of Nextdoor, right? Just like early, mm -hmm. early operators who have 
tremendous credibility when it comes to actually building something from teeny to highly successful. So, you know, their core mandate like ours isn't to just be in the weeds with founders, but I think that's work that they love doing. Um, and it's just part of our whole, whole ethos. So Chris, here's a question we ask everybody who comes on the show. What is success to you? It's a hard question. I think I'm still figuring that out. I think my equation for success is having the self-awareness to know the things that really matter to me and then being ruthless about giving each of those things equal space in my, in my day-to-day. I think it's, it's, it's your family, right? It's your friends. It's, it's, your, it's your purpose. I think one of them is work and like work that satisfies you and keeps you challenged. But I think, candidly, I think I've probably over-indexed on work in the past 10 years. And so I, I'm right now, I'm figuring out how to stay doing what I'm doing from a working perspective, I, I couldn't imagine a, a better place for me right now from a career perspective. I love what I do, but I'm actively working to make sure I am not letting that get in the way of other things that are important that I think become more and more real to you as you hit every birthday. So... Hmm. Yeah. Self-awareness of the things that matter and the attentiveness to actually carve out the space for those things. It's always a work in progress too. So it is still trying to figure that out. We're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. That's why I ask everybody. That's a very unique answer. Yeah. It's like, you know, you focus on balance. Most of us, most of the people we interview is like, go big or go home, right? Okay. Maximize your impact. That's a very, very common answer. Chris, thank you for sharing all of your stories and all this stuff is fascinating and a little bit unusual for sure. Um, And very serendipitous, honestly, like so many steps. One thing that strikes me with a lot of guests is, uh, so how'd you get into this? Right. And like, I think as humans, we're very good at making up stories about why this led to this, why it's causal, but really like a lot of the times it's just luck. Um, And I think it's, it's pretty interesting, but of course there's also like the readiness, right. When the opportunity presents itself, I don't think you would have gotten that first job offer if they didn't see a spark in you that they wanted to take a chance on you, right? So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a luck component, but I think there's so many twists and turns you can take, right? So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, yeah. All right, Chris, for the next section, deep questions. What do you think, having worked with so many people and in the field of talent for so many years, what do you think of the future of talent? I think it's gonna look very different than it does now. Before we jump into that, I think a lot of the dialogue, at least I'm hearing right now about the impact of AI on some of these core functions, I would almost have expected to hear more about how it will impact recruiting because I think it it will do it in so many ways and we can get to that. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating to me is that it really has revolved, at least in my exposure, around how it will immediately impact engineering teams, right? Technical teams and sales teams. And I I was trying to kind of get at why that was. And I think I know, and it's, it's just, and this is not a bad thing, but leaders are spending a lot more time thinking about their sales teams and their engineering teams and their recruiting teams. 
And so, and that's, and that's just the truth. I think it's, you know, I think there's a different threshold for founder involvement in, in recruiting, but I think to that end, I almost think that recruiting will be less impacted in the short term than you might think based on what recruiting entails, just because it's sometimes an afterthought. I would have almost thought there was more chatter about recruiting and AI, and maybe I need to be the one to start the chatter. I think that one of the hardest skills to develop as a recruiter is not, can you source? It's not, can you build a pipeline spreadsheet or keep your notes perfect about the interview questions that you asked? You know, it, it's not scheduling. It's not corralling interviewing teams. It's, it's being really good at identifying talent and then understanding what connection you need to make with that talent to get them across the line. Like people forget that recruiting is not a charity, right? You don't owe anybody anything when you put them in the process. Your job is to get a hire and you need to focus on will that happen or not? And I think what you'll see automated to start with, increasingly top of funnel activities on down, mm -hmm. right? You're going to see sourcing become very automated. It already is in, in many ways. I mean, I think there's so many recruiting products in the market that it's hard to keep a handle on, but even today, right? You can pay a tiny amount of money for a lead, have these lists generated automatically, and then pump them into a, a you know, automated sourcing engine that does all of your outreach and follow-ups for you. All of that is incredibly easy to do. Coordinating... Right communications internally with teams, right? There's always been just, it's such a headache to get everybody on the same page. And what does our intake meeting look like? Oh, that will all be automated. But I think what yeah. won't be automated in the near term is the ability for somebody to actually understand what's motivating a candidate. Like what intent do you have for your job search? What do you want to do? And then using that knowledge to guide them through a process and, and kind of tee up an offer that you know will be successful, right? It's why on the sales side, you're still going to have really impressive senior salespeople closing deals, right? AI can't mm -hmm. close a candidate. And so I think it's a time for early recruiters to really think about, of course, how to best use the latest technology to make themselves more efficient. But just keep in mind that never has it been more important to be very relationship-driven, focused, and understand the motivations of somebody as you get them into the process. So I'm fascinated by it. I, I wouldn't want to be 23 right now. I, I'm, I'm glad that I experienced it. <laughs> like, like, you know, I think that there's just a lot to keep up with. Um, but I, I, I think, I think the most important recruiting skills, like in many industries, at least won't be automated in too near, near a term. Um, but you're right. going to see recruiting teams be reduced in size tremendously, right? Where, okay. So yeah, that's something I want to dig into, right? So a couple of thoughts. One is I, I have this mental model, I guess, to visualize a little bit of like every job is a collection of different skills. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of like. There's like spheres of skills that are, some are more tangential, like it doesn't matter if you're an engineer or a PM or 
a recruiter. You got to know how to schedule meetings, how to take good notes, how to disseminate information. That's right. Those peripheral skills seem to be the first to go probably because they're the most menial. They're not that interesting and people aren't that much better at machines doing that kind of stuff. And they're time consuming. Yeah. Right. Right. And so like it makes a ton of sense that there's a lot of economic value to be unlocked to automate that. But for every job, you can kind of dig down the layers and you can get to like for engineers, maybe it's like, how good are you with these languages and these frameworks? How familiar are you with good patterns? Then maybe beneath that is like, do you have the right mindset to like solve problems? It's a little more abstract, right? For a recruiter, I think what you're getting at is the the core skill, the thing that's most essential to your success that's also likely the last to be replaced by an AI is the ability to really understand people and build relationships. Like see in people their potential and building a human-to-human relationship that's, you know, we can debate whether that will ever be fully replaced, but, you know, probably not soon. Um, is Agreed. that kind of how you see this? Yes, and I would distill it down even further to say what what cannot be replaced, at least now, is the ability to close a candidate, right? It's really just getting that thing signed, right? It's about having such a keen awareness of what they care about, what the team cares about, and asking the right questions at the right time to drive to a this is going to work out or it's not and drive to that as fast as you can. So it really comes down to, can you close? Can you close candidates? Yeah, I think I have a few thoughts here. I think, Chris, your answer is very focused on talent, right? Which is recruiting. Yeah. I also think kind of the the definition of talent will change in the future. Mm. Because I think what people are excited about the AI in the current iteration is it sort of took away the human judgment out of the loop. Because if you think about it, right, what's special about a really good engineer is, is the ability to make decisions, make judgment about, oh, which database you should you should use, what schema you should design, right? What's the optimal solution uh, in this current stage of your company to build a service, yep. right? But those parts are now can be automated, right, in a, in a Kind of reasonable way. I don't think it's actually getting to to the level that everything can be automated. But I think what's interesting to me is like what you think of a talent. Like what what do you think is a skilled senior engineer today looks very different from three years from now, right? Like what yeah. is a 10x engineer in three years is probably someone who can interact with those like large language models, yeah, and become a hundred times engineer, right? Uh, exactly. So I think the definition of talent will actually change pretty profoundly pretty soon because, um, you know, if you, if you think about, I think the analogy in, uh, in Go, the game, uh, not, the, not the language, <laughs> is, is very uh, telling, right? Basically, yeah. the best Go player is the computer, right? right? Is, those, is those machine learning model now. So that fundamentally changed the game because now people kind of know the optimal solution and uh, we're trying to, try to learn from that, right? That became the number one training strategy <laughs> is yeah. to learn from the AI, right? right? So, and that fundamentally changed what a good Go player is, right? So yes. I think that would be the the fundamental change that that's coming. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think that's why it's both exciting and, and I'm anxiety inducing to just same with the fact that the 
the top one, five or 10 percenters in five years are just going to have a degree of ability to interact with technology that doesn't even exist today that, that we just can't get at. And I think some of us that are a bit later in our careers where we're, where we're using, you know, less of the mechanical portions of our day-to-day to get the job done are a little shielded from that. But I think for anybody who's just starting, it doesn't matter if it's engineering or recruiting or investment banking, like you are going to distinguish yourself in interviews. And I think interviews will become increasingly work trials and projects. I think that's a really interesting trend. You will distinguish yourself by teaching the people vetting you about new technologies don't even know exist to enhance what you can do. It's so hard to feel like you're staying caught up, but I think just, especially if you're earlier in your career, you need to anticipate that you are going to at really good organizations be required to have a perspective on how you're going to use this technology to be more productive. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Genie is out of box, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. just, you know, fuck around and figure out basically <laughs> is the yeah. current state of things. Maybe that's the good thing is that people that you're telling these, these perspectives, you don't know if it's right or wrong. So you just got to have one. Yeah. I'm also curious how we see talent changing across different fields. So we already touched on, you know, engineering, recruiting. What about different functions, right? And how might they be impacted? I, I would bet that it's not linear. It's not like half of every function will like... Yeah lose their jobs and the other half become like 10x whatever um and i wonder how we you know think about this so one interesting framework i've kind of heard about is this idea of market supply and demand so for example for engineering for the most part there's always been a shortage of productive engineers right, right. um and so you could argue that you know maybe instead of laying off 50% of the engineers we just have the same number of engineers do way more engineering because the demand is there for more and better software. Yeah. Um, whereas I think, you know, I wonder how that applies to all these other functions like product, design, talent, finance. There must be functions that just have a lower ceiling of demand. That's like, we only need so much, I don't know, sales, recruiting, yeah. customer support. That, you know, once it saturates that, like the company is only so big, we only have so many customers, we don't really need every customer service agent to be 10x like we probably end up just letting some go because we only have so many customers right yeah, so I, I wonder if you know there's like a we can do an analysis of like a chart of what percentage like of yeah uh, the different jobs will be impacted by automation yeah i know it's a little bit like dark yeah potentially scary oh um, I, can but... you if you please build that and then send it to me <laughs> i think there will be a, a different scale of teams that are impacted. I think what will be generally true is that teams will be reduced and the exceptional people will be kept and they will make more and it will right. create even a larger gap between even in tech who's making it and who's really making it. But on the flip right. side, at a time when you know, there's this new frontier. I think you're going to see the amount of interesting companies and ideas accelerate potentially exponentially because every single industry is going to be impacted by this. So the people who don't make it 
at the very highest elite levels of tech company product design will have more options because there will be many more companies and it will just be kind of right. like it. There are balancing effects here that I think make it a little bit less scary. I mean, just in recruiting, what's a positive? I hope that in four years, 95% of resume reviews are done by a machine because what does that do? It completely reduces any subconscious bias that lives in everybody, right? Like I think there are- If we train the models right. We train yes. the models right, right? That's a big, yes. that's a big assumption. Or but you I think, apply a right. bias across, across all, think, all profiles. <laughs> that's right. That's but I mean, yeah. there's- that almost seems like an easier task than rewiring all of our crazy brains that have Absolutely. been built around yeah. valuing people that look like us. And right. So it's, yeah. it's a lot to unpack. Um, yeah. Guys, I wish, I wish I, we had more time because I want to flip all yeah. these questions back on, uh, yeah. on you guys. That'll be the next one. I can quickly we'll just do an all deep questions episode. That'll be the next yeah. one. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I can quickly squeeze in one one sentence. I I'm, I can't can't believe I'm saying this because I'm usually the cynical one, but I think the history is on our side because if you look at all those big technology changes, right, electricity, automotives, televisions, computers, we all always thought that it's going to get rid of all the jobs, right? But just like Chris said, it's going to actually basically kindle the fire of creating new jobs that we don't imagine exists. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. I think I think that's the that's the hope there, right? That's the, I, that's the hope we can uh, wish for. I will go a step further and say we need this because as a species, we have a lot of big challenges from climate change to you know all these other existential things we need to manage, and we need an order of magnitude leap in productivity. And I I'm very excited about it. I know it's going to be uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable, yeah. but we need it. We can't operate the world the way we have been for the past century. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. I may have to go. Uh, Guys, this uh, is awesome. been pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Cheers. See you later. Have a nice okay. weekend. Happy right, weekend. Too. Bye. See ya. See ya.